Mind podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a talk from Scott on Did Jesus Preach the Gospel from a few years back at Q Ideas. We were in South Africa. I was in the passenger seat, and my friend Theo Kaiser was in the driver's seat. I asked what I thought was an innocent question. He gave what I thought was a potent answer. My question was a simple one. Theo, since he had just returned from the United States, what do you think of America? Uh, I've learned you don't ask South Africans questions like this. But he said this. It struck me. It's all the same. Everywhere we went, it was all the same. Miami, Dallas, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit. Same restaurants, same clothing, same grocery stores, same hats, and what irritated him the most, the same wines. None of which were from South Africa. The media, he said, the advertisers have taken over and they've made every place, the same place. And when everywhere becomes the same place, things happen. When everywhere becomes nowhere, every place becomes no place. And when no place becomes every place, every sacred sacred place becomes a no place. And as he said this, As we were talking in the car, I lost all contact with what he was saying about Cape Town and Stellenbosch, and I began to think about a lecture that I was giving at the University of Stellenbosch on the gospel. I believe that words have encountered the same thing that Theo encountered in the United States. When all words mean the same thing, no words mean anything. When the gospel, which is the favorite word for people to use today, means everything, it loses all meaning. The question I want to ask you today is a question that really matters to me because I'm irritated by what's going on in the American religious scene. Did Jesus preach the gospel? Now, before I begin to answer that question, There's something else I want to bring up. Friedrich Nietzsche, who has a powerful influence in American culture and philosophy and even theology, once said that the text has disappeared under the interpretation. And I think this has happened to the meaning of the word gospel, that the text has been buried or has disappeared under the interpretation. The question is, did Jesus preach the gospel? I've had three incidents recently that focused my attention. I have an emailer who writes this. Increasingly, they begin with this sentence. I know you're probably busy. And I want to say, well, then don't bother me. (laughs) If you have time, he says, I have a question about the gospel, and now I'm interested. I notice that the gospel writers, he says, often include in their gospel the announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. 
My question, he asks, what is good news about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? And I thought to myself, wow, the text has been buried under the interpretation. Two weeks ago, John Piper gave a lecture at a big conference in which he asked this question. Did Jesus preach Paul's gospel? And as an Anabaptist, the question irritated me. <laughs> but he examined Luke chapter 18's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where we find the only instance of the word justified in the four gospels, and he concludes, well, yes, Jesus did preach the gospel of Paul because he preached justification by faith, and John Piper suggested that Jesus may well have been teaching double imputation. The text has been buried under the interpretation. At an airport, I bump into a pastor that I recognize. He asked me what I was working on, and I said, I'm trying to figure out the meaning of the word gospel. And he said, that's easy, justification by faith. I asked him back my question, did Jesus preach the gospel? His answer, nope, he couldn't have. No one, he said, understood the gospel until Paul. No one could understand the gospel until after the cross and the resurrection and Pentecost. So, uh, without being too irritated, at least showing my irritation, I said, not even Jesus. And he said, nope, not possible. I said to myself, too bad for Jesus, born on the wrong side of the cross. <laughs> but I didn't say that, but I have now. Harsh, harsh words. I admit that what I've said is harsh about what these great people are doing in the world. But I believe we have developed a personal salvation culture at the expense of a gospel culture. That we have a culture of justification and personal salvation that is concerned with who is in and who is out, and we've lost contact with the meaning of the word gospel. Words matter. Theo is right. When all words in the Bible mean personal salvation, no words mean anything. So today I want to look at four terms with you, four expressions that we use that I think we must keep separate if we are to develop a gospel culture. The first expression is the biblical narrative. And frequently I break the biblical narrative down into six categories. That God created us and he made this world as a temple into which he placed his icons as his personal representatives, as priests and kings. And those icons cracked in Genesis 3. And as a result of that, God works out a way of working these people into being who he wants them to be by covenanting with them. This story goes on and on and on in the pages of the Bible as God works out his plan for history through the people of Israel until he sends the one great Israelite, the true Israelite, the full icon, Jesus Christ, who is the completion of that story. And out of this icon, Jesus Christ, 
he forms the church and he gives this church a universalizing mission to declare the story of Jesus in the world as we wait for the consummation. That's the biblical narrative. Many people call that the gospel. It's not. So the second expression that we have to look at is the gospel. And my, I will develop this a little bit later, but I think we have done some bad work on the meaning of gospel. The word gospel belongs to the narrative, and it makes sense only in the narrative. And when my emailer asked the question, I rolled my eyes, and I wrote a friend of mine by the name of Tom, who is also a bishop, and he rolled his eyes from England. <laughs> the gospel is the announcement, the declaration, the heralding that Jesus is Messiah, and he is the point and goal and telos of the narrative. He is the Messiah, and he is the Redeemer, and he is the Lord. He lived, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose again, and he's coming again. As the raised and ascended one, he is Lord of both Jews and Gentiles, and that is the gospel according to the New Testament, and I'll develop that later. The third expression, and now I begin to irritate people, and I'm a college professor, so I like that part of what I'm saying, and I want to ruffle your feathers if your feathers need to be ruffled, and I want to provoke you because the third expression is the plan of salvation, and I want to say it's not quite the gospel, but it is what we as evangelical Christians feast on, the plan of salvation. And here are our favorite elements. God's love and grace and holiness. Our creation as icons and our sinfulness and therefore our standing under the judgment and wrath of God, but that Jesus Christ stepped in as a substitutionary atoning death to forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to God. And all we have to do is respond to this plan of salvation in faith, and we too can be saved. That's the plan of salvation, and I want to suggest to you that no one in the New Testament calls that the gospel. Fourth, the method of persuasion. This is how we have learned to package the plan of salvation in order most successfully and powerfully to provoke people into decisions, which is called evangelism, and by that we mean we are preaching the gospel. We begin most frequently with judgment and hell and wrath because it raises the ante of ultimacy into everything we have to say. It grabs people's attention, and no one who preached the gospel in the New Testament did this. The gospel belongs to the narrative. The plan of salvation and the method of persuasion belong to each other. And I want to say we're back to Theo Kaiser's observation. It's all become the same. And back to Nietzsche's theory that the text has disappeared under interpretation. Yes, words matter. And it's important that we look at the New Testament again and I want to compel you, simply by provocation, to go back to the Gospels, go back to the New Testament, and ask what this word gospel means. 
Three points. First, the Apostle Paul defines the gospel for us when he says in 1 Corinthians 15 in words that barely touch on the plan of salvation and have nothing whatsoever to do with a method of persuasion. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which in turn you received, and in which you also stand, through which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the gospel that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. Paul lost his Calvinistic nerve for a moment. For I hand it on to you as of first importance, this is the gospel, according to Paul, what I had in turn received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel is to tell and declare the story of Jesus as the climax of Scriptures of Israel's story. It is according to the Scriptures. There is a story that comes to a climax in Jesus. Paul, when he says the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, does not mention justification. He does not mention double imputation. Yes, this is a saving story, but the saving story, the plan of salvation, is not identical to the gospel, which is the climax of Israel's story. So consider, why don't you, 1 Corinthians 15 as a gospel statement. Secondly, there are seven gospel sermons in the book of Acts. Our fathers began to preach in the book of Acts, and we have seven brilliant sermons, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 10 and 11, Acts 13, 14, and 17. Seven brilliant sermons on the gospel. Each of these sermons is a narrative of the story of Israel that comes to climax in Jesus Christ. The same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. They don't use our method because they're not thinking in our terms of the plan of salvation. Their method is what I would call, and this needs development, can't do it here, their method is declarative rhetoric rather than persuasive rhetoric, and there's a big difference. So let me sum up what I've said with these two points with these words. According to Paul and according to the apostolic gospelers of the New Testament, the gospel is to herald the story of Israel as coming to climax in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. The most important thing I will say to you in this session is that to gospel or to evangelize in the New Testament is to herald the story of Jesus as the Messiah. And now my third piece of evidence. When I pondered this in my office one day, it fell like a weight of glory upon me. For having studied the gospel for 25 or 30 years, I had missed this. If you open your New Testaments, you will discover that they launch with four books. Incredibly, they are called the gospel. Not the gospels. The gospel. According to four people. The gospel as told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And I remember asking myself this question. Why did those early Christians, if not the authors themselves, call these four books the gospel? And I came to this conclusion, because they were the gospel. They really believed the story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the gospel. That was the gospel. And what do we discover there? Exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, and exactly what the gospel sermons are like in the book of Acts. It's the story of Jesus. I'm running out of time. I grew up Baptist. We don't have such things as time when we're talking. I have learned from teaching college students, 50% of my students at times are non-Christians, that the story of Jesus is a compelling story, and I have seen hundreds of my students become Christians because I tell them the story of Jesus. I don't tell them the plan of salvation. But the plan of salvation unfolds from the story of Jesus. I'm back to my question. Did Jesus preach the gospel? I love the question. The pastor I met at the airport was wrong because he did not understand the gospel. The question is not, did Jesus preach justification by faith? The question is, did Jesus preach the gospel? And if the gospel is the story of Jesus, the question now becomes, did Jesus preach the gospel of himself? Which he did. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come, follow me. He announced his own death and his own resurrection. And he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophet. Did Jesus preach the gospel? Amen. He did. Not only that, he is the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel because he talked about himself. Jesus is the gospel. And now let me conclude with C.S. Lewis. You'll know the story, I hope. Leave the lion alone. Look at the lion on the stone table. Watch the stone table crack. That is the gospel. Thanks for joining us today and listening to Scott's talk on the gospel. Before I let you go, I want to encourage you to join Scott and I on Monday, August 4th for Northern's Taste of Northern. This is an opportunity to check out what class is like at Northern and studying with Scott. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the Chicago area and can come in person or, like me, uh, want to join online. So, hope you can join us. Go to seminary.edu to learn more information. But thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.